Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Those of you who have joined us in recent weeks know that we have been on a journey. We've been on a journey through the final days of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. We have followed his footsteps, followed them on the triumphal entry to the temple takeover to controversy on Wednesday. We followed him as he waited and as Judas schemed and plotted. We followed him into the sacred precincts of the Garden of Gethsemane as the world's destiny hung in the balance. And we have been to that place called Calvary. We have been witnesses to both the crucifixion and the cross. And last night as we gathered here in this place, our minds were turned to the hours of the Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday on that weekend so long ago, and to the pockets of people around the city having very different experiences of Shabbat Shalom. Last night, those of you who gathered here wrote on pieces of red paper, wrote sins to confess to the Father, and you attached them to the cross out front. Some of you asked me on the way in this morning, we noticed that the red has become white. What happened? Well, Isaiah could answer that. He said, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be as wool. That's what happened. And we left last night pensive about those Sabbath hours filled with so much confusion and question. And today we come back in the dark hours, in the darkness, as it moves toward dawn of the first day of the week. As we have followed the footsteps of Jesus, our primary focus has been how can we enter in and experience what they experienced? What might the record suggest actually happened? So I read from Matthew's Gospel, the 28th chapter, beginning with verse 1, these words. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. 
So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It was in my mid-teen years. I was 14, maybe 15. My dad was pastoring a church in Guadalajara, Mexico, made up primarily of medical students and their families. He not only pastored the church, but he worked as a mission pilot, flying medical students and medical supplies and foods to the Huicholes, an indigenous tribe of people in a land that time had forgotten. Once Dad flew out to the Huicholes, there was no contact whatsoever with the outside world until he returned that evening. I remember that night. I remember it extremely well. And I am not alone. After first service, my sister texted me, Lindy Thomason from Texas, and said, I remember that dreadful night. It was that night when Dad and the three medical students with him did not come home. Four families gathered together, huddled together, praying and filled with fear. There was no way we could know it at the time, but the plane had crashed upon landing at a new airstrip high in the mountains, about 8,500 feet elevation. Miraculously, nobody was seriously injured. But now they had no way back. We would not find out until the rescue plane brought them back the following evening what had happened. So for us, that night was filled with anxiety and worry and sorrow and tears. I remember when it came time to go to bed, I slept, if you want to call it that, very fitful, tossing and turning, but I went to mom's and dad's room and I lay down on the side of the bed where dad slept. Just a teenage boy trying to feel close to his father. Mom, on the other side of the bed, spent the night alternating between weeping and praying. It was a very long night. By the time the morning was looming, we were already up. There were people gathering. What are we going to do? How are we going to find out? We have to act. And act they did to find out what had happened. As I read this past week, about that night, certainly Friday night, but now Saturday night for the disciples, for the followers. My mind went back to that night because I suppose anyone who has experienced a trauma, a tragedy, anyone who has received bad news knows the experience of tossing and turning in the night, praying for the break of day and yet fearing what the break of day will bring. Such must have been the experience for the followers of Jesus, the disciples, the women who had followed him, who had tended to his needs, had supported him. So much so that by the time the night was growing late, they got out of bed and they started for the tomb. Each of the gospel writers pins a record of that account, tells the story of what happened. Each adds his, or his own nuance to the story. Each adds some different information. But as we gather the accounts together, a picture begins to emerge of what likely happened 
early that morning, the first day of the week. They're all agreed that the women went to the tomb first. They got up, and they couldn't take it any longer. The men, they were probably still afraid, still still locked in for fear of the Jewish people, what they will do to us. But the women, they couldn't take it. They took spices and ointments, and they headed to the tomb. We're going to anoint his body properly for burial, the very thing we didn't have time to do because of the Sabbath just 36, 40 hours ago. And they make their way down the path, a gaggle of women on their way to the tomb. As they walk, they converse. They ask questions. That stone is huge. There's no way even altogether that we'll be able to move that. Who will help us move the stone? It's when they come around that last bend and they're able to see full on where the tomb lies that they are hit with a shock of surprise. The black door of the tomb is clearly open. The stone not only has been removed, but as though brushed aside by a powerful hand has been tossed on its side. What's happened? Are there grave robbers, the grave robbers that are, that are so present in the world at that time, have they come? But why would they come? There certainly were no riches, no treasures involved in this burial. What has happened? It appears as you read the account that at that point in time, two things happened. The first thing that happened was that Mary is sent back or chose on her own to go, probably sent back to tell the disciples, go and tell them the tomb is open. Maybe somebody has taken the body. And so Mary departs to go tell the disciples. And the other women, they draw near to the mouth of the tomb. There's no Roman guard present. Those who quaked and fell as dead men have now fled. They have fled only to be accosted by the religious leaders. Look, you keep your mouth shut, but you know if we keep our mouth shut, we pay with our necks. No, 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 no. We, here's money. You keep your mouth shut. We'll take care of the governor. You don't say a word. They probably don't need to. A mere look at their ashen faces, slack-jawed, wide-eyed, tells the tale there was no grave robbing here, not of the kind people think of. The women draw near, only to be met with angelic visitors. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen just as he told you he would. Look, here's the place where his body lay. Now, go back, tell his disciples. Tell them he will meet them, as he said, in Galilee. Meantime, Mary has reached the disciples. She has broken to them the news. Something has happened. We're not sure what. The tomb is open. The guard is gone. We don't know what has occurred. Immediately, Peter and John race for the exit and run pell-mell toward the garden tomb. John, likely the younger of the two, outruns Peter. 
arrives at the tomb, peers into its interior, its empty interior. Peter, huffing and puffing, catches up, impetuous that he is, bursts straight into the tomb, upon which John follows. And they look at what's there. The text of the Gospel of John says that they saw the grave clothes, that John saw them and believed. Doesn't that want to make you, want, make you want to ask John? John, isn't that fairly scant evidence on which to believe? Some, 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 some grave clothes? And you believe? How could you believe? New Testament scholar William Barclay answers that with these words. Peter and John went at a run, and John, who must have been a younger man than Peter since he lived on until the end of the century, outstripped Peter in this breathless race. When they came to the tomb, John looked in but went no further. Peter, with typical impulsiveness, not only looked in but went in. For the moment, Peter was only amazed at the empty tomb. But things begin to happen in John's mind. If someone had removed Jesus' body, if tomb robbers had been at work, why should they leave the grave clothes? Then something else struck him. The grave clothes were not disheveled and disarranged. They were lying there, still in their folds. That is what the Greek means the clothes for the body where the body had been, the napkin where the head had lain. The whole point of the description is that the grave clothes did not look as if they had been put off or taken off. They were lying there in their regular folds as if the body of Jesus had simply evaporated out of them. The sight suddenly penetrated to John's mind. He realized what had happened, and he believed. It was not what he read, had read in Scripture which convinced him that Jesus had risen. It was what he saw with his own eyes. And so they stand in the dim light of the tomb, viewing the grave cloths. That's how we rolled them. That's how we folded them. But there's no body. And John believed. The text doesn't tell us about Peter. One would assume that he too would have to confront that reality. And from what he will write later, it is clear that he too believed when he wrote his first epistle. Right in the very beginning of the epistle, he said, Praise God because he has given us a new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter, too, confronting what he saw there in the tomb, must have had the beginning contractions of a new birth into a living hope that would have meant everything to Peter. What do they do next? 
It appears that quite likely they left the tomb and went back to meet the other disciples who well may have been on their way to the tomb themselves. By then, the women had returned, at least one, Mary. By this point in time, no one has yet seen the living Christ. What they're hearing with their ears, what they're seeing with their eyes is compelling, but no one has laid eyes on him. And Mary comes, still likely unaware of what John and Peter have experienced, maybe knowing what the other women had said, although she had departed from them, so she may have come back without knowing. She approaches the grave tearfully, Weeping, knowing that the grave is rent asunder and the body is gone, somebody has taken him. In her tears, she doesn't recognize at first the voice from within that speaks and says, why are you crying? She speaks out and says, please, if you have taken him, tell me where you've taken him. I would give him a proper burial. She turns from the tomb and almost bumps into the gardener. Again, through her tears, not recognizing who it is. Sir, she says when he asks also, why are you crying? Sir, she says, if you have taken him, please tell me where he is. And the gardener speaks one word. One word that is sufficient to sear through the pain of Mary all the way to her soul. How did she know with that one word? Was it the familiar ring of the voice? Was it the familiar way her name was spoken? Was it the powerful gentleness revealed? We don't know. What we do know is that that gardener spoke just one word, her name, Mary, Mary, Mary. And hearing that voice, she knew. She looked. She lunged to grab him. It is Jesus. He is risen. At that moment in time, the story of that first day of the week begins to pick up speed. The news begins to spread. The followers and disciples are electrified. The religious leaders are terrified. The Roman guards are mummified. But the story spreads in concentric circles outward. Something has happened at the tomb of the Nazarene. In fact, if you read the accounts in the Gospels, 
you realize that it didn't just change the story for the followers of Jesus on that day or on that week. It changed the entire story of Jesus' followers. Read the Gospels, read the book of Acts, read the epistles, read all the way through to Revelation, and over and over again will come echoing that sentiment, He is risen. It made all the difference to those who followed. The fact that he had risen meant that nothing else that preceded it mattered. Nothing else that could possibly follow mattered because Jesus had risen. It's the modern-day scholar Jaroslav Pelikan who picks up that sentiment and who simply says, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. That is how central is that event, not just for the Christian faith, but for the history of a planet that originally spun pristine and pure from the Father's hand and has been broken asunder by this fracture called sin, has been taken over by an enemy called death. And now death has been conquered. Did you notice what Matthew says? That stone that stood at the entrance that stone that was so weighty and so heavy and so powerful that the women, as we would, say, there's no way we can move it. There's no way we can confront death. There's no way we can change it. And yet Matthew says, when the angel descended, the stone was moved and he sat down on it as though to say, I'm done with you. Why? Because he is risen and nothing else matters. If that be true, nothing else truly matters. Except that you might ask, what about us? Here we are 2,000 years later, a world removed, 21st century Southern California, as opposed to 1st century Palestine. What difference does it make to us? Two millennia and a half a world away. Well, you know that if you have a congregation that is large, community of believers like this that gathers together, that the reality is that in any given week, tragedy strikes somebody. Trials come into someone's life. Difficult news bursts forth upon the boundaries of some family's experience. I've heard it just this morning, shaking hands in the lobby. Things that people have heard this week, the reality of what has happened in our lives as a community. It's the simple fact of life. For one family, it might be, it might be that dad walked out the door this week left behind a weeping wife and crying children, left behind a wake of pain that will not fully be healed, not in weeks or months, but possibly even in years. The pain echoes and reverberates already, but it will continue to ring for years to come. And that family staggers into church this morning asking, is there a word from the Lord? Another family Wage earner's been pink-slipped this week. Done. Never saw it coming. 
made a very good living, but the margins were razor thin, and now the prospect of no income is deeply frightening. What are we going to do? We can't go this way very long at all. We'll lose the house. We'll lose everything. What will we do? And that family trudges into worship this morning asking, is there a word from the Lord? Another family sitting in a doctor's office, and the doctor says, I'm sorry. And their mind's real. The diagnosis is grim. Will the prognosis be as grave as feared? Sleepless nights? Worries, concerns? What if, what if, what if? And they hold tightly to each other as they come quietly into worship this morning. And in their hearts is a question. Is there a word from the Lord. There is. There's an old word that comes echoing from a garden, echoing across the centuries, still resounding throughout the millennia. There's a word from the Lord. It's a word that Rick Warren knows. Rick Warren, senior pastor, Saddleback Church down in Orange County, author of the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Warren and his wife, Kay, experienced the horrible tragedy just not too many years ago. Their 27-year-old son, Matthew, chose to end his life. After years of struggling with mental illness and depression, just couldn't hang on any longer, had been hanging on by the fingernails, and then his fingernails cut to the quick, and he fell hard and couldn't bear up under it. Listen to Warren's words, Rick's words. I've often been asked, he says, how have you made it? How have you kept going in your pain? And I've often replied, the answer is Easter. You see, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery. But Easter, that Sunday, that first day of the week, was the day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact of life, he says. You will face these three days over and over and over in your lifetime. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do in my days of pain? Two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? The answer, says Warren, the answer is Easter. The message that continues to echo through time. Is there a word from the Lord? Yes. And it is my 
profound privilege to announce it to you. But I want you to help. We began the service this way. I want to come to it again at this point. If you've been to a liturgical church, you know that liturgical churches have a moment in a service like this where the worship leader will stand and will say, Christ is risen, and the worshipers will respond, He is risen indeed. I want to ask you to do that. So let's practice. Can you say it with some vigor, some vitality together? I'll say it again. Christ is risen, and then you say, He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. So here it is. Here we go. 2,000 years ago, early on the morning of the first day of the week of that weekend, a group of women went to a tomb. Two disciples ran to a tomb, each of them to discover that there was a word from the Lord there. There was a message from God at the tomb, the place where all seemed like failure and loss. There was a message. It was a message that would change every piece of bad news you will ever hear. It changes every illness you will ever face. It changes every graveside by which you will ever stand. It is a message of hope and of joy and of victory. It is a message that is a word from the Lord that I take great pleasure in announcing to you today, Christ is risen. Amen.